The El Conservador Radio Show is sponsored by George Rodriguez on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Time for the El Conservador Radio Show with George Rodriguez. George is a constitutional conservative who loves to expose fake news and liberals. Be a part of the show. Call 210-308-8867. And now, El Conservador. George Rodriguez. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Once again, my friends, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM radio, The Answer, here in beautiful San Antonio, uh, on this uh, glorious Saturday, uh, October 3rd, 2020. And boy, do we have so much to talk about today. I mean, so many things happened this past week. It's incredible. Um, We've got um, two very special guests today on our show. Uh, from the White House, even. Uh, we've got Mr. Ben Williamson, who's going to be chatting with us about uh, the, um, the nomination of Amy uh, Barrett to the, White, uh, to the uh, Supreme Court. We also have Mr. Brian Morgenstern, who is uh, one of the uh, special assistants to the president on policy issue, talking to us about uh, uh, law and order and what uh, the president's uh, position uh, has been and has taken regarding the issue of uh, supporting the police, supporting law and order, and trying to address this whole craziness that is going on in some of these communities with uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Um, we also have uh, Mr. Preston Henneken uh, from uh, FAIR. Preston uh, put together a uh, very interesting report uh, regarding all of the efforts all of the many efforts, he counted 41, in fact, of the many things that uh, the, pre- the Democrats have done to try to frustrate the president in his immigration policy, immigration law enforcement, for example. Uh, they have uh, opposed immigration law enforcement left and right, uh, while at the same time they have promoted illegal immigration. Yep, that's what they've done, promoted it. So um, Preston uh, it, from FAIR is going to be with us and chatting with us, uh, explaining that report. Uh, we also have a series of interviews that I did uh, regarding the debate itself. Uh, I reached out to several folks uh, from around the state, and uh, they were kind enough to come on and chat with me very briefly, give me their opinion of what happened in these, uh, you know, how they viewed the debate. So um, uh, you'll find that very, very interesting, obviously, obviously, because my show is a very conservative program, and the people that listen to it are mostly uh, 99% conservatives. You're going to have, you're going to hear a conservative uh, viewpoint on uh, on the debate. But nevertheless, I reached out to, to chat with them. Um let me uh, let me talk real quick about this terrible announcement that occurred uh, the uh, that occurred on on uh, Friday uh, regarding the president testing positive for COVID. L- you know, uh, now that the president has tested COVID uh, positive for COVID, you know, it, it reminds me of a political ad, my friends. It reminds me of a political ad uh, that Wendy Davis, the Democrat that's running for Congress here in San Antonio, is running. Uh, you know, uh, she says that uh, she has a, a woman on there who uh, is rather upset that uh, she came down with COVID. Like, like it's, you know, it's it's our fault, like it's the administration's fault. Let me tell you, my friends, I am, an, I, I am a di- diabetic. I am 69 years old. I have uh, uh, asthma. I am high risk, what they would classify high risk for COVID-19, the terrible things that come with it, you know, even mortality. And my friends, I haven't gotten sick. I haven't gotten sick. I refuse to believe that I should live in fear and doubt. And at the same time, I refuse to believe that this pandemic is as widespread as everybody says. I think it's real. I think people do get sick. But my friends, I th- also think that it's not as bad as, a, a, as it has been painted to the point that we've had to shut down the economy. I refuse to live in fear and in doubt. And that's exactly what uh, the Democrats seem to want to do. 
So uh, I hope that, um, you know, I hope that uh, the, the, the best, I pray the best for the president and Melania. Uh, somehow, I think that uh, they're going to come through with this with flying colors, and it'll be another reason for the, uh, for the Democrats to hate them. So anyway, thank you for being with us today, my friends. And uh, let's go to our first uh, uh, interview with um, Preston uh, Haneken from, uh, the, uh, from FAIR. Howdy, 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 my friends. Once again, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM radio, The Answer, here in beautiful San Antonio. And uh, we've got uh, one of our buddies from uh, FAIR in Washington, D.C. Uh, we've got Mr. Preston uh, Hennigan, who, uh, is, uh, who has uh, put together a uh, report uh, regarding the Democrats' efforts to stop the president's immigration policy. As we heard uh, a lot of things in the debate this past week, but we didn't hear that much about, uh, about immigration. Nevertheless, uh, from what we understand, there's another caravan that's coming north uh, from Honduras. Uh, so, uh, Preston, um, thank you very much for taking time to be with us. Tell us about this report that you did and the many things that they've that the Democrats have tried to um, uh, stymie or 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 prevent the uh, president's immigration policy from going forth. Yeah, absolutely. And and first and foremost, thank you for having me on to discuss this. You know, it's a very uh, you know, very important topic heading into the um, final November election. And like you said, it really wasn't touched on in uh, the presidential debate. So I'm happy to, to go ahead and kind of talk about what has really happened over the past few years and how so much of the president's efforts to reform immigration in this country uh, have really just hit a brick wall. Um, and a lot of that comes from the Democratic Party. And so this report really highlights, especially since 2018, when the Democrats took control of the House of Representatives, how they have stopped every way they can uh, the president's efforts to pass legislation um, that would move us to a merit-based immigration system. Um, they've obviously have done everything in their power to um, halt the construction of the border wall. And they've targeted some of the president's most uh, effective policies that he had to make at the executive level, um, most of those being his efforts to kind of tighten up our asylum provisions and uh, even really try to torpedo his efforts to work with countries in Central America and with Mexico um, to, to stop you know, fraudulent asylum seekers uh, from coming to the border. So what this report does is chronicle in a timeline what the Democrats have done to, to stop the president's efforts. Um, and it also highlights, too, some of, you know, the um, you know, less legislative things just within the Democratic Party itself and how you know, they as a party have moved so far to the left on this issue. Uh, tell, give us, give us some, uh, a little bit of the timeline. Tell us a little bit of the, of the things because, I mean, we know uh, that, they've, uh, you know, that they have uh, lobbied strong for sanctuary communities and, and uh, the issue of open borders and releasing, catching and releasing. Uh, give us, give us a, 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 some some timeline. Give us, give us some some idea of some of the th some of the things that they've done. Right. So, you know, it's interesting. In 2019, you know, this is after everyone, you know, the, the blue wave, right, that came through the House and that sent, you know, the uh, Nancy Pelosi back to the, um, you know, to the Speaker's gavel. And so, it starts off slow. In March 2019, uh, the House Democrats introduced a bill that would incorporate illegal aliens into their medical uh, Medicare for all um, legislation that they were proposing at the time. And this really gave us an insight into what their strategy was going to be moving forward. And since then, on every large piece of legislation they've proposed, there has been some sort of carve-out and some sort of, um, you know, side side. Uh, bill, essentially, that would include illegal aliens in whatever they're doing. So in this case, it was Medicare for all, and then even in the most recent stimulus legislation that they passed last night, the HEROES Act, they included 
uh, a provision giving illegal aliens um, stimulus checks and, and rental assistance. So that was a, a, a really novel strategy on their part to include illegal aliens uh, really as constituents whenever it came to, to a bill that they were passing. But, you know, there were other instances, too, that were more targeted specifically towards immigration. Um, for instance, in April 2019, uh, Senator Kamala Harris, uh, who's obviously Joe Biden's running mate, uh, she introduced a bill that would allow uh, illegal aliens to work in Congress um, as, as paid aides. Um, which is, you know, patently ridiculous because you have to be an American citizen or a legal permanent resident to to work in Congress or to work uh, oftentimes for the government in any capacity. And so then the House really started moving towards kind of piecemeal legislation that was targeting certain actions of the president. For instance, in July 2019, um, the House Democrats passed a bill that would expand um, temporary protected status uh, to people from Venezuela, and this was specifically targeting uh, the president's action to roll back some of those TPS protections for other countries. And the Democrats wanted to show themselves as, you know, defenders of these people that have you know, been in the United States, um, you know, frankly, for a lot longer than TPS should have been extended to them. Uh, and then, you know, since then, they've They've done things like, you know, they've passed bills that would make that would put really onerous restrictions on border patrol facilities. They've obviously called for abolishing ICE in many cases. Um, and uh, this is just, you know, just a taste, really, of how far their entire caucus has moved to the left on this issue. So, I mean, not only are they proposing legislation that would open... Uh, open things for or opportunities for the uh, for the illegal aliens, but they've also uh, opposed um, uh, legislation uh, that the president has proposed, like for like funding for the for the wall. Correct? Yes, absolutely. And um, you know, one of the most important things to remember is that the Democrats came to power in the House uh, during the midst of a government shutdown because. They, they wanted so, so much to prevent the president from using certain military funding to, con- to construct portions of the border wall. And even when the president uh, you know, declared a national emergency to address the security and humanitarian crisis at the southwest border, uh, the Democrats and many of their allies in Washington, D.C. sued the administration. And, and this was done really at the urging of, of House Democrats, because they, they knew that they couldn't overturn it in the House and in the Senate through the normal legislative process, so they had to go to the courts. And that's another strategy that they've used to target the president's efforts to influence immigration. Uh, they did this with the census citizenship question. They did this with the public charge rule. They did this with the travel restrictions the president put in place on countries that are known sponsors of terrorism. Uh, and they've done this um, with temporary protected status and um, with his decision to, to roll back DACA. And, you know, unfortunately, in many of these cases, the administration didn't succeed. Uh, and that, that's just another tool at their disposal that they've used to stop the president's action on immigration, even though they only had control of one chamber of Congress. Now, you know, being honest in this situation, which they never have been, uh, I remember at one point when they, uh, when Obama did speak out again, uh, about securing the border and uh, when uh, folks like, like uh, uh, the, the, spe- the uh, speaker also uh, proposed uh, legislation to uh, stop, curtail illegal immigration, uh, I, I mean, are they just playing politics at this point, just being antagonistic towards the president? You know, it's interesting because often that is kind of the case, right? The, you know, the opposing party is going to oppose largely whatever, you know, uh, the other party says. But, but I think that in this report, we have really shown that in many cases, the Democratic Party has really embraced what they are saying publicly. I, we don't get the sense that this is something to just oppose the president. They, especially some of their rising stars, 
you know, who we, who we all know. We know Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We know Rashida Tlaib. You know, these are people that are truly the future of the Democratic Party, and, and the party leadership has said so. And if we look at the rhetoric they are pushing, and then you see how that rhetoric has influenced, you know, older legacy establishment members of the Democratic Party, it is remarkable what they have what they have put, how far they push the Democratic Party. And a great example of this is someone like um, Senator Kirsten um, Gillibrand from New York, who early in her tenure as a senator, she had voted for you know some some measures that would that would stop illegal immigration. But you saw her when she was running for president adopting some of these you know really really fringe positions on the left, such as abolishing ICE and you know abolishing some of our laws against illegal immigration. And so, you know, these are things that I think show that the Democratic Party truly has moved to the left on this issue. Yeah, we've had, uh, you know, situations in some cities, like in San Francisco, where they've gone so far as to to allow illegal aliens to vote uh, in local elections. And uh, so, uh, obviously, they are, you know, I mean... They're pretty serious about this situation. Absolutely, and and that's also one of the reasons I think why uh, you know former Vice President Joe Biden, as part of his you know his big immigration promise for this election, is to amnesty every illegal alien in the country. And there's there's a clear reason for that. Uh, and you know many Democratic strategists have said it because they they truly believe that these people will be Democratic voters. And if you think about that, that's anywhere from 11 to 20 million people who would be naturalized under his plan and would then subsequently get the right to vote and would be able to to go and, and, in their minds, vote for Democratic candidates. And that changes, you know, the electoral politics of quite a few states, um, particularly Texas and Florida. Now it would, yes, (laughs) <laughs> that's that's something that I think there's a there's a clear calculation made on his part why he put that in his plan. Wow, uh, Preston, thank you very very much for being with us and chatting with us regarding this very very important issue. Uh, let the folks know where they can read more about um, this report and how they can follow Fair. Absolutely, they can read this report on our website, which is fairus.org, and they can follow us on Facebook. And Twitter, uh, and we really, really uh, hope that you do, and that you read this because it is, like you said, a very, uh, very important document and a very important issue. And I can't thank you enough. Cannot thank you enough for having me on. You got it. Once again, my friends, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, and we've been talking with uh, Mr. Preston uh, Henneken from uh, Fair. Thanks a lot, Preston. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Once again, my friends, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you from KLUP in San Antonio, deep in the heart of South Texas. Thank you for being with us today. We've got a very special guest with us today. We've got, all the way from the White House, we've got uh, Mr. Ben Williamson, who is the Deputy Assistant uh, to the President, and he's a Senior Advisor to uh, the Chief of Staff. And uh, we wanted to get him on here to chat with us about the new nominee uh, for uh, the Supreme Court. So, uh, Ben, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule today. Uh, tell us tell us about the new nominee. Well, George, first of all, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me on and greetings from the White House. Uh, it's a very special day today. Uh, the president will be making a nominee uh, or making a nomination for the Supreme Court uh, today at about 5 p.m. It's an exciting day here. We've been looking forward to it for a while, and he'll be fulfilling his constitutional duty, one of the most important tasks that voters gave him. What you're going to see today is a well-qualified woman who is uh, someone with a tremendous uh, legal mind, legal background, uh, legal record. And I think what you're going to see most importantly uh, is a constitutionalist, textualist judge Uh, that puts the law first, that doesn't let personal opinion, uh, personal bias get in the way of decisions. What she ultimately does and what she's committed to doing uh, is judging cases based upon the law. And that's, I think, what we really want at the end of the day in any judge is someone that doesn't legislate from the bench, doesn't put their own opinions first, but they go uh, with the law as it is written, not as they wish it to be. 
So that's what you'll see today. The president's very excited to make his announcement here at about 5 p.m. Uh, and we're looking forward to it. It's a great day uh, for the country as a whole. Let me ask you, because uh, one of the situations, obviously, that's, uh, that we anticipate is uh, the criticism, uh, the attacks. And uh, we have seen how awful they were with, with Kavanaugh. Do you think that um, it might get that nasty with, with, uh, with, with her? Well, George, Ronald Reagan used to say to live in peace, prepare for war. And then he was talking about something very different than SCOTUS confirmations when he said that. But it plays very well into the situations today. We prepare for the worst. We hope for the best. We're certainly hopeful uh, that our friends on the other side of the aisle will judge the nominee on her merits. Uh, we'll ask her appropriate questions in accordance with her legal record. Uh, and we'll be respectful during the process. But as you said, if, if history is any indicator, uh, what we've seen is that uh, the Democrats, unfortunately, have been willing to go uh, to great lengths to stop a nominee, even if it means maligning someone's character unfairly, uh, relying on uh, anonymous accusations that are uncorroborated. So we'll see what happens. We're certainly trying to keep uh, an optimistic attitude. We know the nominee is very well qualified and very well prepared uh, for any kind of uh, unfair attack that may be levied against her. But uh, as you said, uh, if history is an indicator, it, it could be it could be muddy, but we're ready for it. What uh, what were the the, the uh, qualifications or what? What made her stand out uh, to you, you folks in the White House, uh, to, to select and nominate her? Well, I think we were looking for two main things, George. The first thing we wanted was a sound legal record, someone with a proven track record uh, of a constitutionalist approach that really elevates uh, the Constitution and the law above all else. We've unfortunately seen too many instances in history where unelected judges put their own personal opinion or their own political viewpoint uh, ahead of the law. And what the president always wants is a judge who's going to put the law first. Like I said, the law as it is written, not the law as you wish it to be. That's the first thing we look for. The second thing is we wanted someone who was respected by their peers. Uh, we wanted someone who had relationships in the legal world, people that uh, were, were praising this nominee for throughout her career. And what we found is someone I think people are going to be very pleased with. It's someone that has been universally recommended uh, by her her law school peers, uh, by people she clerked with and clerked for, and has a great reputation in the legal community. That was something that was very important uh, to us and to the president when, when we were evaluating. So those are the two things I think you're going to see. This nominee is, is well thought of on both counts, and we're very excited about it. That's fantastic. We really, uh, we have seen, in fact, uh, I believe on Friday, there was a, uh, a situation here in Texas where a federal judge Overturned some legislation that um, the state of uh, that the state legislature had uh, had approved um, about um, not uh, letting people not allowing um, uh, straight party voting anymore. Uh, you know, a lot of folks are very very tired of uh, of uh, folk of, of uh, judges legislating from the bench. Uh, do you do you think that uh, that uh, she'll be able to counter that? She will be, George, and you're absolutely right. And for your listeners, what I want them to, to know and take away from this ultimately is the reason why this is so important, the reason why legislating from the bench is such a problem, particularly with the Supreme Court, which, will, which is what we'll be talking about today, is voters need to have a say over who's making laws in this country. And when you have something like a Supreme Court, which is nominated by a president, these judges are not elected or unelected. No one, no one votes for a uh, Justice Roberts or a Justice Thomas or an Elena Kagan. Uh, they're nominated by a president. You don't have a say directly uh, over what a Supreme Court justice rules or doesn't rule. That's a problem when you talk about legislating from the bench. Voters need to be able to hold people that make laws accountable. And so laws need to be made by local elected officials, people in the United States Congress, people in the United States Senate. When you talk about a president enforcing a law, a president is accountable to the people. When you talk about judges legislating from the bench, that takes power out of the people's hands. That's something that's never a good idea. So when we evaluated a nominee, we wanted someone that was going to abide by the law that the people's representatives put into play, not by the law as they wish it to be. Gotcha. Uh, I really, you know, uh, we, we are extremely, extremely out here in the group, in the hinterlands. We are very, very uh, hopeful and full of anticipation on this uh, on this nominee. 
uh, we're going to be watching the the proceedings with uh, with a lot of care and well, you know, uh, I, I sure hope that that it doesn't turn into the circus that uh, the Kavanaugh uh, hearing turned into. You know, I hope not too, George. But what I can tell you and your listeners is, at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, no matter what people of different political parties say, what you're going to see is a well-qualified nominee with a tremendous track record who loves our country and wants to do right by the Supreme Court. And the Americans have a president that, that knows that. Uh, that respects that need for a justice who believes those things, and that's what you're going to have at the end of the day, is, is a Supreme Court justice, uh, once this woman is confirmed and upholds those principles, and we can take heart in that, no matter how uh, ugly the process may unfortunately get. You got it. Thank you very, very much, uh, Ben, for taking time to be with us today. We've been speaking with Mr. Ben Williamson, uh, Deputy Assistant uh, to the uh, President and Senior Advisor to the Chief of Staff in the White House uh, in Washington, D.C. Ben, thank you once again. Thank you, my friend. God bless, and we'll see you all soon. Take care. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Once again, my friends, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM radio here in San Antonio, the heart of South Texas. And uh, we've got a new uh, a, a new person, a new guest with us, uh, a very special guest, uh, Mr. Brian Morgenstern. And he is the special assistant to the president in the White House. Uh, he's also deputy secretary and deputy uh, director of communications. Uh, I feel really, really privileged that we've got him on the on the line. Uh, Brian, thank you for taking time to be with us. Uh, let's talk about one of the hot, hot items that um, uh, was discussed in the uh, in in the debate the other day, as well as continually is discussed out here in the hinterlands. Uh, unfortunately, where uh, a lot of the the press elite kind of ignore us. But uh, the issue of law and order is something that's really, really important to us out here. What, uh, what is the White House? Uh, what, what's your policy? What is your, 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 your take on, on law and order uh, as, far as, uh, as far as the administration goes? Well, George, first of all, thank you for having me on. It's really great to be with you. Um, and I appreciate the question. President Trump has been a leading voice on this issue for months. Uh, and when we see you know, the violence, the rioting in some of America's cities controlled by Democrat uh, mayors and Democrat governors, his message is, please, by all means, ask for help. We will send federal law enforcement. We will send resources. We will send the National Guard if it's needed. We will do what it takes to restore order in the streets. We saw it successfully done a number of times, and we've seen a number of times where the local authorities are too proud or whatever the reason is, they don't accept assistance. Uh, the president will always stand with citizens who want peace in their streets. These lighting buildings on fire, these uh, you know, interrupting people at dinner, uh, physically harming people. None of it is acceptable. The president wants peace in our streets. It is alarming to many Americans that there are public officials who seem to be either okay with it or are just not doing their job strongly enough to put it to rest. But the president will continue to be a leading voice on that and will continue to offer whatever resources may be needed to restore peace in the streets of America. You know, that's that's really, really good to hear because I remember uh, when I worked with the uh, Justice Department's Community Relations Service many, many years ago, probably before you were even born. <laughs> the uh, you know that little agency was was uh, supposed to work with uh, w- with uh, police departments to bridge uh, the issue of uh, whenever there was a community conflict with the police department or something like that. But the thing that I kept seeing, and I see even more so nowadays, is that uh, police departments are uh, almost. Uh, viewed as uh, as enemies by uh, both the liberal press as well as the Democrats, as well as they are uh, the police officers themselves are are uh, judged guilty of anything they do, including uh, simple traffic stops. Uh, how is I mean is 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 the uh, administration trying to address that whole issue in some form or fashion? 
Yeah, absolutely. And the president's been strong on this as well. And that's why there's so many law enforcement groups that are coming out and supporting the president and his policies, because the police need respect in order to do their jobs. We cannot be in a place culturally of assuming that the police are the bad guys. It's exactly the opposite. The, the police are the people who sign up for a job where they could be put in harm's way to protect strangers, potentially people they've never met, as well as their friends and family and neighbors. Uh, it's an honorable profession, and we have to respect our police officers. To the extent any of them do something wrong, of course we believe they should be held accountable. But this kind of uh, cultural shift that we see coming from the left, where they're trying to sow distrust in our police, is really dangerous. And defunding the police, and uh, you know, we, we see all these, these pushes, like in New York City, for example, where they're taking money away from the police force, just as they're seeing spikes in crime and in violence. I mean, that is just nonsensical. So the president is, of course, standing with our law enforcement and wants them to be very well funded. He needs them. He wants them to have the resources they need to uh, to be able to do their jobs to keep all of us safe. You know, as I said, they, they signed up for this job to protect people potentially that they don't even know that they've never even met. Uh, they want to do a job that, that's going to keep their community safe. They deserve our respect for doing that. It's, it's really an honorable thing that they're doing. So we hope that we can sort of stem the tide, nip it in the bud of, of uh, this cultural shift that we're seeing where people are stopping uh, their trust in police officers, and we want to restore it. Excellent. Um, let me ask you one, uh, one other question, and this is regarding the uh, Supreme Court uh, of the United States, because ultimately we view that as the, uh, as the end all whenever there is a, a legal dispute. However, uh, there seems to be, again, there seems to be an effort to cast doubt and uh, to cast, uh, uh, to, to, to make uh, the uh, Supreme Court and um, the Constitution, to make them all, all uh, somehow suspicious as far as being fair and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and equitable. Uh, when you're talking to to folks about uh, the new uh, justice that's been nominated, uh, how do we address that? How do you guys address that? Yeah, I mean, the, the president speaks very clearly on this, that he wants justices of the Supreme Court who will uphold the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And that's why he has nominated Judge Barrett now to the Supreme Court, because she has an outstanding record academically, top of her class at Notre Dame Law School. She has an outstanding record professionally as a multiple-time professor of the year uh, and as an outstanding attorney and now an outstanding judge on the Court of Appeals. Uh, she is endorsed by all of the Supreme Court clerks that she worked with when she was at the Supreme Court. That's people from all across the political spectrum. She is unanimously supported by the Notre Dame Law Faculty. That's people all across the political spectrum because she is a qualified, fair-minded person. And that's what the American people should want. What we're hearing from the other side saying that because they might not, not like one result or another, they're going to pack the court, they're going to try to create this sort of, you know, life-appointed super Congress <laughs> at the Supreme Court that would just enact their preferred policy outcomes. Well, that's not how you have a country that's based on the Constitution and the rule of law. That's not how you have a country where our God-given rights are upheld by the courts. Uh, under the Constitution. So uh, the president will continue to, uh, to pound that drumbeat. And that's part of the reason that he was president. If you remember, he was very transparent about how he would approach judicial nominations. He released his list of judges that he would consider. He recently, right here from the White House, updated his list of judges. And then, of course, chose Judge Barrett from that list. He's very transparent, and it's really compelling to the American people. I think it really resonates, especially when the other side won't release a list. All they'll do is threaten these radical actions. So uh, we think it's a, it's a winning issue for the president because it's really the way our country is supposed to work. Do you think that uh, these um, Democrats that have uh, claimed that they're not going to meet with her, uh, with Judge Barrett, uh, do you think that um, that will impact on the, on the hearing or, or the uh, process in any form or fashion? Well, it's disrespectful uh, and disappointing, but I don't think that 
it will affect the process moving forward. The president has exercised his constitutional duty in putting forth a really outstanding nominee, and now the Senate is doing its duty in moving forward, uh, and we believe that there's plenty of time to have a thorough and fair vetting process and confirmation process, and we, we wish you know that maybe we were uh, in, a, in a position like we saw decades ago, like when Justice Ginsburg was confirmed or Justice Scalia was confirmed or, uh, it, you know, when, when it was less partisan, it was more about whether the person was qualified, whether the person was fair-minded. And now it just seems uh, that the, the left side has turned it into more of a political game, and that's unfortunate. But we are uh, very pleased to see the Senate moving forward, which with what we believe will be a rapid but thorough vetting process you know one of the one of the comments that was made on uh during during the debate the other night uh was the issue of um that uh biden kept saying that uh, the the people should have a, a, an opportunity to uh to uh have a say in the nominee well the people did by electing um president trump did they not yeah of course they elected him president for four years he is still president uh, at this time when the vacancy happened. And every single time throughout our nation's history, when there has been a vacancy during election year, the president has put forth a nominee to fill it. That's his constitutional obligation. And four years ago, uh, when there was an obligation or where there was a vacancy, we saw the left had a whole hashtag, do your job. Well, President Trump is doing his job. He put forth an outstanding nominee. So uh, he will continue to execute his duties for as long as he is the president, and uh, we're also pleased to see the senators who were elected, like the president, on a platform of, uh, you know, considering constitutionalist judges, they appear to be following through with their duty as well. And, you know, there, there is a key distinction that the, the left side likes to gloss over, which is that throughout our history, if the president and senate are of the same party, the nominations tend to proceed to confirmation. I think it was 17 out of 19 times, something like that, uh, versus when there's divided government, uh, Senate and the president are different parties. It's very seldom. I think it was like 20% of the nominees actually made it through. And that's part of the way our constitutional government is set up. There's different powers vested in the White House and the Senate. So in this case, we're pleased that the president and the Senate are of the same party, and they appear to be proceeding uh, in a fair expeditious uh but thorough way brian thank you very very much for taking time to be with us today uh i i can just imagine how busy you guys are <laughs> oh it, it is it is never a dull moment never a dull moment i'll tell you that <laughs> we've been talking with uh mr brian morgenstern who is uh, deputy uh press secretary uh and communications director in the white house thank you very very much for taking time to be with us brian my pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Hello, El Conservador listeners. If you are interested in following George Rodriguez, El Conservador, we invite you to follow him at his internet website, elconservador.net. You can also follow him on Facebook at George Rodriguez El Conservador and on Twitter at El Conservador for daily commentaries. You can also purchase his book, El Conservador, Conservative Opinions, online at Amazon.com. The book contains essays and commentaries about illegal immigration, fake news, and race relations. If you are interested in inviting El Conservador to speak to your group or event, please contact him through Facebook or through the station at 9.30 a.m. The Answer. El Conservador thanks you for your support. Keep the fire of freedom burning. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Once again, my friends, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM radio, The Answer. And uh, as everybody knows, we just uh, went through the... Uh, experience of watching the debate, the uh, Trump-Biden debate uh, this past week, and we wanted to uh, get some folks uh, who watched it to uh, tell us what they thought, and our first person that we wanted to reach out to talk to is Mr. Mike Dinger, who is uh, who we're calling uh, and talking to in beautiful Malone, Texas. So, Mike, tell us, uh, what uh, what were the highlights, what were the lowlights 
uh, as far as the debate? Well, I, I like that he pressed the questions to uh, Joe Biden about his son and, and the things like that, and uh, and he didn't let the, the VP press him against on any issues. Gotcha. And what did what didn't you like about it? I didn't like how it became a schoolhouse brawl. It was, <laughs> it was arguments. It made the it made the the presidency look cheap, and uh, it made America put a black eye on America. I think last night. <laughs> you got it, buddy. All right. Thank you very very much, Mike. Uh, we'll uh, we'll reach out to you at some other time about another talk about another topic. All right. <laughs> you take care. Bye bye. You too, George. Bye bye. All right, folks, now we're going to be speaking. We're going down to the Rio Grande Valley, and we're talking with Mr. John Allen, who is in uh, beautiful downtown Mercedes, Texas. John, what did you think were the high points and the low points of the debates between uh, Trump and Biden? George, thanks for having me on your show. I, I genuinely appreciate it. Uh, the interesting concept of of, uh, of Mr. Biden trying to claim that he's not all about the Green New Deal and he does it, he doesn't uh, uh, adhere to it, and then quickly saying that oh, it's revenue neutral and it's this, that, and the other thing. I, I found that to be clearly, without question, disingenuous. Uh, I thought him trying to slander Kellyanne Conway was weak. Uh, I thought, uh, in summation, uh, I thought that Joe Biden came off as a pasty old man who had to be saved by Chris Wallace time and time again. (laughs) I guess um, he didn't come off as uh, a man that we need to be uh, the leader of the free world. You got it, buddy. Thank you very, very much, and uh, we'll reach out to you on another day to uh, talk about something else. All right, buddy? Yeah, there's uh, there's something I need to talk to you about, I'd like to talk to you about, and I hope to do so in the near future. You got it, buddy. Take care, my man. All right, George. Take care now. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Our next guest, my friends, is Miss Carrie Hall, who's right here in San Antonio in our own backyard, and I wanted to, uh, so let's ask Carrie. Carrie, what did you think were the high points and the low points of the uh, debate between uh, Trump and and, uh, and Biden? Um, well, I definitely thought that Trump had a lot of energy and he was well prepared. Um, I think that probably the low point would be the fact that the continual um, talking over each other and the belittlement uh, it didn't progress the conversation. It, it wasn't really a true debate. Gotcha. Do you think that it it convinced anybody, or did it help uh, to um, uh, further any of their of their campaigns? Um, I think that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to say that Trump came out as a bully, um, and I think there's going to be some people that saw Biden for what he really is, and he's not prepared. Gotcha. Thank you very, very much, Carrie. All right, thank you, sir. All right, folks, our next guest is Miss Virginia Hermosa, who is calling us from uh, beautiful Buda, Texas. And, uh, uh, Virginia, what did you think were the uh, high points and the low points of the uh, debate between uh, Trump and, and, and Biden? Well, the high point for me was when the president was trying to get across information of of some of the things that he accomplished in these past three years when he tried to get some of the information regarding the economy, regarding uh, what he was doing with, you know, to make everything start rolling again, because that's really what we need. So I wanted to hear that, that, that he has a plan and that he was moving in that direction. I think he did well with regard to his comment about uh, nominating the newest uh, nominee for the Supreme Court. I think he's right, you know, that, you know, right now is a time we should never have, you know, a missing justice if we can avoid it. Um, I think the low point for me was that the moderator, being an attorney myself, I'm used to debating, if you will. And so 
in this case, what I observed with the moderator was that he needed to be moderated, you know, because he was using leading questions. He was basically setting the tone and stating things that he, I, I believe he believed there were facts, but they were disputable facts in my mind based on what we know. And so he was asking leading questions and then asking his question, you know, he was making a statement and then asking his question. And so I think it was appropriate for the president to say, you know, so I guess I'm debating the both of you, because that was very clear that that's what happened. <laughs> another, another low point for me was on both sides, that there was so much, um, you know, so much cutting in and interruption. But the lowest point for me was when Joe Biden told the president to shut up. Oh, my gosh, I, yes. That really put the fire in my pants. I mean, to me, it's I get it, that there's this level of play, it's heated right now, and we're at full throttle and with everything that's going on, but he is still the president. And never at any time did the president call, you know, tell him to shut up or do any anything like that. And so I was very, very upset by that. And so once he said shut up to the president and the moderator didn't even touch on any of that and continued to just basically feed Biden, you know, feed him the questions and with the answer already, basically, I just kind of lost interest at that point. I felt like the, I, I could understand why the president would be frustrated and, and it didn't go well. You got it. Virginia, thank you very, very much for taking time to be with us today. You're welcome. All right, folks, we've got uh, our final guest is Mr. Carlos Romero, who is uh, the Republican Party chairman from LaSalle County uh, down here in South Texas. Uh, We're talking to him all the way from Cotula, Texas. Uh, Carlos, what did you think were the high points and the low points of the debate between uh, uh, Biden and Trump the other night? Mm -hmm. I believe the opening statement was probably one of the high points when they had uh, President Trump and Mr. Biden greeted each other. Uh, once the dialogue started, uh, the 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 fact of uh, touching base with the COVID nineteen and uh, Supreme Court, uh, the nominee, and, and all these factual uh, bits that were coming out, they they sounded real good. But we couldn't get the entire content because of the interruptions that was being made. And uh, from that point, it just kind of started going a little bit of argumentative more, and uh, just not a lot of time to uh, to really elaborate on on a lot of the issues that we're that I think the United States is. Uh, is is really concerned with. Uh, he did, and uh, I, I, I really did like the way that he talked about the support of law enforcement and law and order in the United States. And um, some of the uh, some of the moderation that was occurring, I don't believe it was. It, it really wasn't moderated. Uh, you know, the, the entire debate was more of a kind of assisting the uh, the challenger, Joe Biden. And uh, what was equal time wasn't given equal time to the, the president. As far as uh, being able to to comment on, on some of the uh, the topics that we're discussing, yeah. Let me ask you this. Let yes. me let me ask you this, Carlos. You as a uh, as a Republican uh, chairman, do you think that the debate, uh, either either uh, Biden's uh, action uh, comments or Trump's comments, do you think that it would help? It will help uh, the Republican Party in any form or fashion in South Texas. Yes, I believe that uh, President Trump's uh, his information that he was talking about really concerned a lot of uh, of our voters down here because uh, a lot of it has to do with the economy. And as far as uh, as far as being being talked to about uh, opening schools and closing schools, I believe most parents are ready to have their their children go back to school. And the point that he was making. Uh, Mr. Biden, he's a professional, he is a professional politician, and throughout all the years that he's had, uh, he has not really done anything that has benefited the Democratic Party or other constituents, whether he's been voted for or not. Gotcha. Um, I I do know that uh, 47 years is a long time to be in Congress and not to really have your name attached to any type of bill or law that is a positive for the the citizens of, of, uh, of his district or anybody else in Congress. My man, uh, I just believe that uh, with President Trump, he may not be able to uh, articulate very well. And in a lot of cases, uh, some people get the message totally uh, blurred. Instead of trying to find out what it's about, they're paying attention as as if it's a popularity contest. (laughs) You got it. 
Carlos, say that, but they act like it's a professional uh, football game, and they're diehard fans of the home team. Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, President Biden. I mean, Vice President, former Vice President Biden. Uh, he's just repeating things that have been told to him by the Democratic. I call it a machine. Yeah, their party. My man, thank you very, very much. Uh, let me tell folks real quick that you guys are going to be having a uh, Trump train event on the seventeenth. Um, of October down there, correct? Yes, sir. That is correct. And uh, and uh, everybody's invited. Anybody? Everybody's invited to come on down and and support the Trump train. Yes, sir. And uh, we are going to have a prayer in the uh, pledge of allegiance approximately two o'clock. We're having a meeting this afternoon. I'm trying to get there as we speak. And uh, a lady by the name of Mindy, she is the one that's spearheading this. And we're going to try to get this thing going. And it's open. And like I said, it's all about supporting our Republican Party and uh, our beliefs, uh, the moral beliefs. And uh, I think the uh, Republican Party has a great plan, and uh, we, we hold our leaders, we, we hold them accountable. You got it, buddy. Once again, my friends, we've been talking with Mr. Carlos Romero from Cotula, Texas, in uh, LaSalle County. Thank you very much, Carlos. Once again, my friends, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM Radio, The Answer. Thank you for being with us today. I hope that uh, you will uh, continue to uh, support us and listen to us every Saturday at 2 p.m. Central Time. You can also go to the KLUP 930 AM website, uh, and uh, you can uh, check out El Conservador, the uh, past uh, programs past radio shows that we've had, or you can go to uh, blogtalkradio.com uh, and uh, you can find El Conservador there too, and uh, past shows or past interviews that uh, that we have done. So I hope that you will continue to, to uh, support us and uh, listen to our program, tell your friends about it. Once again, my friends, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you from Deep in the heart of South Texas in San Antonio on KLUP 930 AM Radio, The Answer.